Well, we're looking at uh, Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles with you, it may be helpful to have that passage in front of you. And um, the letter to the Galatians was Paul's earliest letter. Uh, he had been on his first missionary journey to uh, South Galatia, which is modern-day southern Turkey. You may have been there for your holidays. And he went through towns there like uh, Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, names that may be familiar to you from the book of Acts. And uh, this was the first missionary journey of Paul. He went through, he saw tremendous conversions. People converted out of paganism into a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the trouble was that following fast in his footsteps were the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were people who professed Christ. They may have been Christians, but they didn't really understand the full gospel. They thought Paul didn't understand the full gospel. So they followed in his steps, going to all these different towns and telling these new converts who've been converted from paganism that unless they obeyed the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, became proper Jews, became circumcised and obeyed all the law, they wouldn't be proper, proper regular Christians at all. That's what the Judaizers did. And they were the curse to Paul throughout his ministry. These people who were Jews originally converted to Christ, hopefully, who believed they still had to obey the law of Moses and you weren't going to be pleasing to God unless you were. So there are these poor pagans who have been converted to Christ, a simple faith in Christ, being absolutely sat on by these Judaizers coming in town after town after town, telling them all this stuff that they had to believe uh, in uh, the Ten Commandments and all the Old Testament laws if they wanted to be proper Christians. And Paul was incensed. And if you were following the language earlier on, you can understand just how incensed he was with these Judaizers who swept through threatening to undo all the glorious gospel work that he had been doing. And that's why the message of Galatians is about freedom. It's not about being shackled again to the law of Moses of the Old Testament. Christians need to understand this. I mean, up to this present day, there have often been people who, yes, have been true Christians, and yet have still been shackled by Old Testament law. So it's not a totally historic question. It's one that is deeply relevant to uh, Christians uh, today. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And uh, we need to understand just how comprehensive that uh, freedom actually is. Uh, it's been the theme of Galatians right through. He's told them uh, that when he was in Jerusalem, uh, false believers infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. He says that in chapter 2 of Galatians. He tells them that Scripture had locked up everything under the control of sin. So it's not just the law that's making you a slave. It's, the sin, it's, it's uh, sin itself that's making you a slave. But he says in chapter 3 of this letter, we were held in custody, in custody, by the law, locked up, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. That's what he says in chapter 3 of Galatians. He says under the Old Testament, people were trapped, locked up by the law to keep them somehow safe, but waiting for, woo, the great joyful New Testament to come out, where you'd be free from all of this stuff. That's what Paul is saying to these people. He's saying, for goodness sake, don't give in to those Judaizers who came through 
Um, he, he says in chapter 4 of Galatians, before the arrival of God's Son, the Galatians had been held in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. And then at the end of chapter 4, he tells this incredible allegory about uh, Hagar and Sarah. Hagar's the slave woman and, and Sarah is the free woman. And he says these Jews are like, like following Hagar. And uh, he draws uh, a rather optimistic conclusion at the end of chapter 4. And uh, verse 31, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman, he says. So, you know, this is all language right throughout Galatians. And when he comes to chapter 5, well, he sort of lays it out. So the first verse of chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And as I say, this is a message not just to people in an historic context, because Christian churches are not being hounded by Judaizers today, Jewish people who claim to be Christians. That's not going to happen, is it? But the same curse of feeling that we must be subservient somehow to the law of Moses in the Old Testament is still a very relevant threat to the Christian today. Freedom in Christ is the overarching theme of this chapter. But the great difference, I suppose, when he comes to chapter 5 is that the Apostle's emphasis now uh, shifts from simply explaining the immense privilege of their position uh, to the great responsibility that that entails upon them. And in the first half of the chapter is what we're going to look at this morning briefly. Paul wants his readers to understand uh, what they are free from in order that they may be able to maintain their spiritual position. Uh, and that's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, but just so that you know what we go, where we're going, um, look at verse 13, which is the first verse we'll look at this evening. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So uh, this evening we're going to look uh, at what Christians are free for. So this morning, what Christians are free from, my wife's uh, got an addiction to gluten, so uh, not an addiction to gluten, an allergy to gluten. I don't think anybody's got an addiction to gluten. Anyway, um, she has this allergy, this gluten allergy. So when she goes in the supermarket, she's always looking for the free from shelves. And when she's found the free from shelves, she will find the, the things that are free from gluten, which uh, she can eat. And I think it's horrible. But anyway, there we are. And uh, so what we're looking for, we're looking on the free from shelves this morning. And uh, this, this, this evening we look at what we're, we're free uh, for. And remember, when, when Paul talks about freedom in Christ, he's not talking about um, political freedom. It may relate to political freedom, but he's not directly talking about political freedom um, uh, in any way at all. He's not talking about any form of physical or material freedom. Uh, the words freedom and slavery that are used all the time in Galatians are used merely as metaphors, as pictures for something far more important. He's speaking of true spiritual freedom. Uh, the true spiritual freedom that Christians enjoy because... They know they don't live under the threat of God's judgment. I hope you know that. You do not live under the threat of God's judgment. You're free from that. 
they know that their sin has been fully judged and paid for when Jesus died on the cross. Do you know that? Your sin has been fully paid for completely, once and for all, by Jesus when he died on the cross. They are free because they know their salvation has therefore nothing to do with their performance. If you're a true Christian, you should know that. If you don't, I'm telling you now to free you up on this point, which is so vital. Your salvation does not in any way depend upon your performance in this life. Thank God for that, you should say. Because God does not forget the things you want to forget in your life. I praise God often that he has saved me from all the things I've done since I was a Christian rather than the things that I did before I was a Christian. I was converted when I was in my young 20s. I've lived all those decades since then. I'm sure I've committed more sins against the light since I've become a Christian than I ever did before I became a Christian. Thank God he forgives all my sins. And my salvation does not depend as a Christian upon my performance as a Christian. That is incredibly liberating to understand that, friends, isn't it? What a relief. Are you living under the shadow of present sin? It does not affect your salvation. It may affect your relationship with God now, but it does not affect your salvation. Praise God for that. If you are free and you know about your freedom, you know that God already loves them, uh, loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Can you believe that? If you are a Christian, he loves you as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Do you believe that? Oh, I can't believe that. Well, for goodness sake, believe it. Because you're in chains if you don't believe it. Why is it true? Because if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He cannot see you in any way differently from his son. You are his child as much as Christ is his child. These are liberating things. These are things when we're liberated in this way and we understand it and we experience it, these are the things that we want or should want to tell other people who are in sorts of, all sorts of chains. Don't you know people who are in, in slavery to all sorts of things? They can be free from all of this. You are loved as much as Jesus and you always will be. That is the freedom that Christians should enjoy. But in this present evil age, we, we know that we're con confronted by the joint forces of our own sin, the residual sin in our own lives, all the influences of the world, which are often baneful and evil, and direct satanic attack. You know, we, we, we're attacked on all sides. Um, and, and we often feel fragile and vulnerable and weak. I understand that. And so does Paul. And that's why he's so concerned when he writes this letter. That's why he's so concerned these Gentile believers are going to be sucked back into a legalistic prison by these Judaizers. Verses 2 and 3 in Galatians 5, he says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, which is what the Judaizers were saying, oh, you ought to be circumcised, you men, if you want to be proper Christians. Oh, yeah, we are Christians, and I think you are, but Paul, he just told you the easy bit. 
We're telling you the, the, the harder bit now that follows, which is that you've really got to obey the law of Moses. And that starts off, of course, by being circumcised. Mark my words, says Paul. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. He says, you've gone back to Judaism. You're bound to obey the whole law. He said in chapter 3 and verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse and is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So if you start thinking you have to obey something in the book of the law of Moses, then you're going to have to do the lot. Because you break a bit of the law, you've broken the whole law. If you drop a lovely glass and just have a little crack in it, the glass is ruined. You break just one bit of the law, and the law is broken. That's what the Jewish position was, the Judaism position was. And, and, and of course, it's very instinctive for us to think in this way. I naturally believe that I must obey God's laws if I want to be saved. That's the natural position, isn't it? If you were to ask anybody in the street who wasn't a Christian, didn't pretend to be a Christian, and you say, well, if there was a God, what do you think you'd have to do to be saved? And you'd say, well, I think I'd have to obey God. I'd have to have to live a good life. I'd have to, 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 to do that. Earn my salvation in one way or another. That, that's, that's the natural thing. That's the in instinctive thing. And of course, once I've headed down that road, there's absolutely no stopping. And what is certain that I will never, ever be good enough. No one who goes down that road ever thinks they're good enough. Even the most fervent Jew, if you asked them whether they were good enough for God, they would say, well, I don't think so. So they'd never be certain of salvation, obviously. And indeed, they can't be certain of salvation because there is no salvation that way. There's no stopping. It's a prison which Christ has come to free us from. But if we reject that way out that he provides, all that we shall be free from is Christ himself and his saving grace. That's what he says in verse 4. You are trying to be justified by the law. You who have, are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. The only thing you're going to be free from is Christ. You have fallen away from grace. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? You're going to prove in the end that you never really were a Christian. You must understand fully and perfectly that you cannot... You must not go back along that path. You have rejected that path of obeying the law of God for your salvation and please, as a way of pleasing God. You've rejected that path. This is a radically new path where Christ has fulfilled the whole law. Don't you try to gild the lily. Don't you try to do to improve what Christ has done. It means you don't understand how totally he's done it for you. You cannot be saved by obeying the law of God. That's what he's saying here. It's all down to saving grace. Trusting in our own good works separates us from Christ. Instead, we have to place all our faith exclusively in him. And as I say, coming to this conclusion is counterintuitive. This is why we need the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, otherwise we don't understand it. Um, verses 5 and 6 in this passage. For through the Spirit, this is the work of the Spirit inside us, through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. <coughs> and, of course, we, we, we talk about justification through faith alone. I may know I'm justified by God through faith alone. I, I may rejoice in the inner certainty that God himself has declared me righteous because I'm in Christ. But what Paul is saying is here is we shall rejoice even more on the day of judgment. But verse 5, through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Are we waiting for righteousness or do we have it now? We have it now, but we're waiting for the day when it's going to be openly displayed to the whole uh, uh, universe. Our, our faith which convinces us now that we are justified by God and, and, and in Christ. Ultimately, we have a hope which is, which is going to be that on the day of judgment, when Christ returns, everybody will see that we have been justified by our faith in Christ. We'll rejoice even more on the day of judgment when our righteousness shall be declared openly. Or, or to put it more simp simply, our present justification by faith shall be gloriously transformed into justification by sight. Faith now, sight then. Everybody will know that we've been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, whereas only you can know, only you can be certain that you've been justified by faith if you put your whole hope in Jesus now. Then everybody, that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying that's the hope in the future. Um, and uh, it, it's a glorious thing. And now Paul now turns his attention again to the Judaizers in verses 7 and 8. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. It doesn't come from God. He's just told the Galatian believers to get rid of the slave woman and her son. That's the allegory of Hagar and Sarah at the end of chapter 4. He says, get rid of Hagar. What he's saying is, get rid of the Judaizers. If you don't banish Hagar, as Abraham banished Hagar, if you don't get rid of the Judaizers from among you, if you stop, don't stop listening to them, you are going to be infected by them. Until you're free from those Judaizers, then you will not be free from all their malign spiritual influences. And Paul here uh, compares the Christian life to a race. But he says, look, this race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And he says, during this marathon race, which is the Christian life, there are plenty of opportunities for even well-meaning people uh, and even innocent activities uh, to intentionally cause us, unintentionally cause us to, to stumble. And therefore, we need to be constantly asking ourselves, uh, where these influences that seem to be throwing us off track come from? Is there anything in your life which is causing you not to live the Christian life as you know God wants you to live it? What are those activities? What are those relationships? What are the things you think about? What are the hobbies you have that are turning you away from Christ? None of these things need necessarily turn you away from Christ if they're not evil. Not saying don't have hobbies, don't do this, don't do the other. Of course not. But maybe it's just the way you do them. Maybe it's the time you do them. Maybe there are all sorts of things in your life which are throwing you off track. These are the things that Paul is talking about here. He says, you've got to get rid of these things. 
Just as you get rid of Hagar, they got rid of Hagar, Abraham did, in uh, the, the, the Old Testament. And uh, we need to ask ourselves, am I depending upon the Lord as once I did in my life? Is my hope entirely in Jesus? Is everything I do based on a, a firm faith and trust in Jesus? Or am I sometimes deliberately forgetting Jesus so that I can do something? It's a question you need to ask yourself. Now, we all know what is right and wrong in our lives. You know, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is always telling you what is the good thing to do and what is a bad thing to do. You don't need to tell real Christians what is good and what is bad because the Holy Spirit is a witness in your heart. So you know what is right and you know what is wrong. The question is whether you're going to do what is right or what is wrong. Now, we're going to look at that in more detail this evening. So do come back if you want to know how to know the difference and how to battle it. But there it is. So um, Paul is saying here, um, you've got to remember various things. Look at verse 9. He says a little illustration here. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. If you make bread, you know all about that. And, and this well-known biblical saying, he's, it's in quotation marks in the Bible here, a little yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough, usually refers to something bad, something pernicious. Um, that's why the bread of the Passover feast, for example, um, had to be free from yeast. That was an illustration of, of how you know, pervasive sin can be in our lives. The idea here is uh, of the pervasiveness of wrong thinking on vital matters. He says these Judaizers, they're going to poison you with their ideas that you've got to obey the law of Moses. It's like cancer cells. Yeast multiplies in the dough. And just as um, in cancer, in, in, in various types of cancer, early stage surgery remains by far the most effective form of sorting the cancer out if it's applicable. So we must cut out from our lives any diseased uh, thinking or activities that will inevitably cause us to stray even further from a simple trust in Jesus. The Christian life is basically incredibly simple. It's trusting Jesus every day. There's nothing complicated about it. The problem comes when we don't. And there is still this old nature within us that causes us to do that. Oh, I know that's not pleasing to Jesus, but I can't give it up. I can't give up that relationship. I can't give up doing this. I can't. Well, every time you say that, of course, you, you turn your back upon the Lord. The great news is that every time you turn back to the Lord, you see him smiling. You never see Jesus except when he's smiling. Because if you turn your back on him, you're not looking at him at all. Turn to him, he turns back to you instantly. That's the great thing, isn't it? You don't have to do penance. You can turn from whatever sin is in your life that is keeping you from Christ instantly and you receive the smile of Jesus. That's the great thing about it. You haven't got to work your way back into his pleasure any more than you had to work your way into his pleasure in the first place. See? It's a great thing, isn't it? And yet we give ourselves so much trouble. I'm sure I can say with the Apostle Paul in verse 10 here, the beginning of verse 10, he says, I am confident of the Lord that you will take no other view. I am confident in the Lord that you will agree with me on everything I've said 
so far. And then he goes on to say in the second half of verse 10, the one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. You stay free from confusion and God himself will judge those who are trying to throw you into it. If there are people or situations, influences, maybe family members, friends, who are trying to turn you away from a simple faith in Christ, um, love them. Uh, God will avenge if necessary. But the fact is, we stay away from confusion. But then Paul closes this passage by returning to the subject of circumcision. Look at the verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Um, don't worry, parents, I'm not going into that. But the fact of the matter is that Paul is feeling very strongly at this point about these Judaizers who are trying to uh, persuade these new Christians converted from paganism uh, into Judaism. Pretty strong language, even for Paul. But you see, the eternal destiny of these Galatians is at stake. And perhaps we could all do with a little more outrageous, righteous indignation in these days of ours. There are a lot of things to have righteous indignation against. And maybe we should be more outspoken. We're so concerned about not offending anybody. Well, frankly, I don't think you can go through the Christian life without offending people. I don't think you can. Is that your aim? To go through life without offending people or to go through life without offending God? Which would you rather do? And a lot of Christians today, quite frankly, choose the first. They say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't want to cause problems here or difficulties here. I can't say this, that, and the other. You know, that preacher this morning, he was rather fierce. I wish he'd just given us a few homely nice truths to take home that we could comfort ourselves with. But you obviously haven't read the New Testament, if that's what you think. Do you want to spend your life offending God or the life offending people? I, I'd rather spend my whole life not offending God. I don't succeed but I can genuinely say that's what I want to do. And the question is whether we want to be in that situation or not. Sometimes we need to speak out. I think in this day and age in which we are, we need to speak out more. The little social, it's fine in, in church because you don't have much to speak out against, I hope. But when you're in your other social circles, when you're in your flower club or your um, sports club or, or whatever it may be, and you're mixing with people in the world, and the things that they're saying and the way they're acting, what do you do? Do you just conform to them then? Are you a different people? You conform to the culture of the church when you're in church and you conform to the culture of that club or society or whatever it is when you're there. Is that, is that how you do it? You just go with the flow. Well, that's not what Paul would do, is it? It's not what Jesus would do. It's not what we should do. We're not there to be unpleasant people. We're there to be attractive for Jesus. But we do need sometimes to stand up and make our points. If somebody says something, you could say, well, I'd, you know, I really rather wouldn't, you wouldn't speak like that, or whatever. I don't know. You do it in the way that's right for you. But sometimes we do have to make a stand. That's all I'm saying. So it's something to think about. Anyway, when these Judaizers were advising the Galatian men that they needed to be circumcised, 
in order to become legitimate believers, they had obviously misrepresented Paul. Um, they had been telling these people that Paul himself had insisted upon circumcision. Um, whether they actually believe this or it was a deliberate deception on their part to make the people believe it, uh, Paul here vehemently denies it. He says, if I was still preaching circumcision, do you think I would have had all the problems that I've had? Of course not, he says. He'd said earlier in, 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 chapter, in, in, in verse 6, in, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's not the physical act of circumcision that bothered Paul. Perfectly right for men to be circumcised. They might be circumcised for all sorts of reasons, medical reasons, whatever it may be. It wasn't the physical act of circumcision that bothered Paul, but its ritual significance. This is what he's saying in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why, I'm being, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. If Paul, what he's saying here is this, if, if I was still preaching circumcision as once I had done as a good Jew, that it was vital for obeying the law of Moses, if I still preach circumcision in that way, if, if, if Paul is still teaching that the way of salvation lay through obedience to the commands of the old covenant, then there would be two consequences. One is he wouldn't be persecuted, and unbelievers, both Jews and Gentiles, wouldn't be offended. After all, nobody minds. If you tell them that God will bless them if they're good and do what God wants, no one's going to complain about that. They say, well, good for you. You carry on. No one minds if you tell them that God will bless them if they're good. But the terrible offense of the cross, the word is scandal, rather appropriately, I think, the terrible scandal of the cross is that it replaces law with grace as the only means of salvation. And that is why the cross affronts people. That is why the cross confronts human pride, because it says that we are lost in our sin and cannot save ourselves. Only God in Christ can do it. You cannot keep the law of God. You cannot please God. Because you are a sinner. God is perfect and you are not. God is not going to allow anything even remotely imperfect into heaven. Is he? Why would you? If you were God, you'd spoil heaven. Oh, there's some imperfect things in heaven. No, there isn't. Well, if you're slightly imperfect, you're a slightly cracked glass, you're not going to heaven. You sin just once. The whole law is broken. The Jews were right in that, weren't they? That's why we have to be in Christ who has perfectly fulfilled the law. And the only way of salvation is through saving faith in Christ alone. Our salvation does not depend upon our performance. So important to be able to understand that. And in fact, he talks about, he says, why am I still being persecuted? <laughs> if I was preaching circumcision, nobody would be against me. But persecution is the one thing in this passage that the faithful believer cannot and should not be free from. As Paul says elsewhere, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In this world, we must either go with the flow or swim against the tide. 
Let's not do the easy thing. It's the Apostle Peter, isn't it, who says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Have you ever been insulted because of the name of Christ? That's a good question. It's a question about how faithful you've been as a Christian in your daily life, I think. Have you ever been insulted because of the name of Christ? If you have been, you are blessed. Blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, says Peter. But let's end this morning by returning to Paul's wonderfully encouraging words in verses 5 and 6, which we glossed over a little bit. But here I'm going to finish with this. Verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And this passage is a lovely little passage because it's one of those passages in the, in the New Testament which includes that um, famous uh, triad of faith, hope, and love. You might think of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love and so on. But there are quite a number of passages in the New Testament where faith, hope, and love are put together in different ways, in different orders, for different reasons, but they always form a, a beautiful uh, section of the scripture. Here's Paul's favorite triad. Faith comes first. Faith, according to verse 5, inspires hope. And faith, according to verse 6, expresses itself in love. And this, says Paul, is ultimately all that matters. You have to start with faith. That's where the Christian life starts. You start with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith leads to hope. My God, we need hope in this world today, don't we? And the Christian hope is of the return of Christ and that ultimately everything will be put right. And it will be. It will be. Faith gives birth to hope. And faith expresses itself in love. And we'll see more of that uh, this evening. But, 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 but here it is. This, says Paul, is the only thing that ultimately matters. When we are truly standing firm in our Christian freedom, when we have truly replaced the yoke of slavery with the easy yoke of Christ, we not only find rest for our souls, but we also discover what this freedom is for. And if you come back this evening, um, then we'll see what that means.